dedicated podcast listeners, I'm sorry, but I have some terrible news. Greg is still out for the week. But this gave us a golden opportunity to change up the format a bit. Uh, this week, I decided to sit down with my father, and we had a little fruitful discussion about one of his favorite movies. So the audio sounds a little bit different, and it's literally just a recorded Skype call. But that's fine. That's fine. Look, if you don't like it, well, don't listen to this one. But I think you're missing out on just a solid piece of great movie talk, all right, between a father and son, all right? What's better than that? Nothing, I tell you. Nothing. And so, obviously, you can still do the whole five stars, rate us, review us, follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts and Twitter and all that. So we miss that at the end. But that's fine. That's fine. So please, enjoy this discussion of A River Runs Through It. So my brother and I learned to cast Presbyterian style on a metronome. He began each session with the same instruction. Casting is an art that is performed on a four-count rhythm between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. If he had had his way, nobody who did not know how to catch a fish would be allowed to disgrace a fish by catching it. So it was with my formal education as well. Each weekday, while my father worked on his Sunday sermon, I attended the school of the Reverend McLean. He taught nothing but reading and writing, and, being a Scot, believed that the art of writing lay in thrift. You know, normally, the way me and Greg start is we do, like, a little preamble. But, I mean, right. I, don't know what, I don't know what we can talk about, Dad. What well, I mean, we can talk about the Stanley Cup Finals, which ended in real disappointment for Boston and New England fans it, all over America. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, but now it's baseball season, so we can watch the Yankees, you know, win the American League East and, you know, give Red Sox fans the same disappointment. <laughs> well, Greg is over in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, is it Croatia or Kyrgyzstan? I can never remember. Kyrgyzstan, you know, it's someplace where he's doing God's work, okay? Yeah, he's doing the Lord's work. He's doing the right. Lord's work. And yeah. it's funny because, wouldn't you know it, we talked about a movie with, with biblical connotations as well. That's right. With two sons, no less. A father with two sons. There you go. A father with two sons. We and have you know, a third. Coming up. Your birthday's coming up, so I thought, what better present than let you co-host the podcast? Thank in you. Correct absence. Yeah. And it's a great movie, uh, released in 1982, uh, directed. I thought it was 92. 92. Yeah. Uh, produced and directed and narrated by the incomparable... Uh, Robert Redford, one of my favorite actors. Now, why do you love this movie so much? Let's because let, this is one of your favorites, right? This let's get a let's get a rundown of A River Runs Through It. Yeah, so uh, I'd say from a rundown perspective, I mean, first and foremost, it's set in one of the most beautiful states in of our fifty states. It's set in Montana, mm-hmm. and it's you know pre World War One, and it's. Um, it's the scenery in the movie is spectacular and it's and the story centers around uh, the growth and development of two young children who grow into young men through the eyes of the older brother Norman and it centers around fly fishing now it could have been auto mechanics mm-hmm. but it happens to be something that I love and enjoy and it's just beautiful outside and it happens to be fly fishing and it's their Presbyterian minister father played by um, uh, 
William Skerritt, who's um, or Tom Skerritt, not William uh, Tom Skerritt, who's just spectacular in his role as a father and a Presbyterian minister. So it's a it's a great story. So you know, it's it's um, father who's uh, pretty set in his ways and teaches them to fly fish using a very metronome like ten o'clock and two o'clock uh, structured method. And, you know, fly fishing tends to be way more artistic than, you know, spin casting or, you know, trawling. And so to have that, you know, methodology of 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock with, you know, set to a metronome was really good for one son. And the other son mm, kind of broke away from it. And as with all adolescents, he found his own way. That's that's right. And he found his own way through his own growth and development of growing up. Right. In this very strict homeschooled, by the way, there's a great scene in the movie um, where Tom Skerritt, the Presbyterian minister father, he's homeschooling them. And that's all he taught was reading and writing and the American language. And there's just some great scenes of, of how he's editing his paper, you know, half as long. Do it again. Half as long. Do it again. And then he goes, that's great. Now throw it away. <laughs> What did you think of the movie? I thought it was it was good. It's good. I think that it's playing with a lot of good themes. It's got a lot of good uh, thematic structure. Obviously, it's about two brothers who are a study in contrasts. Obviously, Norman, the older one, follows in his father's footsteps a little bit better than the young son. Is it Paul? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Norman's the older son. Mm-hmm. Very compliant. Very smart. Very book smart, as well as. Um, just compliant. And then there's Paul, who I describe him as a golden boy because he's like a young Robert Redford, handsome, <laughs> outdoorsy. But he's a risk taker. Yeah. He's a risk taker. He, he has this He has this attitude that he's invincible. And absolutely. basically that yeah. catches up with him. But, I mean, the first scene where we kind of see it play out as adults is the big, what do they call it, shooting the shoot or whatever? They shooting go the shoots in a, in a stolen boat. Yeah. <laughs> stolen in a rowboat which is yeah. extremely dangerous. <laughs> I guess they didn't have like kayak technology back in the 20s, but still. Uh, actually, so it was actually before the 20s. I think it was the late teens because it was pre-World War One. You're right. Uh, you're because right. it was before um, World War One, and, and no one had ever done this before. Mm-hmm. And Paul, Mr. Invincible, Mr. Risk Taker, says he, he goads his older brother, Norman, into doing it. Norman, you can see the look on his face. It's like, there is no way I'm doing this. <laughs> there is no way I'm doing this. You know what you need on that? Ham, cheese, or sardines. Delicious Golden sardines. I'll show you. Boy, can you believe those guys? They'll be telling everyone the class of 19 did it. I should write an article. McLean's Conquer Shoots. I don't That's like sure. sardines. And you could get in a school paper, I bet. Chub. <laughs> Jeez, Paulie. <laughs> what a skeezy. I don't want any goddamn sardines! And of course, they do it. They survive. And what happens the next morning? They get into a fight. Exactly. The very the only fight that's ever shown in the movie. And I think in the narration he says, We never fought again after that, but we always must have wondered who was tougher. <laughs> right? So it's uh kind of poignant 
that the only time they ever had a disagreement or a, a true fist fight was after that scene because Paul goaded Norman into doing it. Yeah. Like, what are you, chicken? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. I wish there was a little bit more conflict like that in the movie because I feel like the movie is pretty schmaltzy. And I don't think, plot-wise, I don't think it goes, it, it plums enough depths because, like, half the movie we spend focused on Norman and his courtship with a young woman. Yeah. Uh, he returns home after going to Dartmouth for six yep. years, I think he says. Yeah, six years. And he comes home and he starts, he's, 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 he's ambivalent about if he should stay or if he should go, if right. he should, you know, like venture beyond Montana, which yep. I thought was kind of interesting. And he kind of gets it both ways by the end. But like half the movie, I feel like is taken up with his whole courtship with this woman and then having to deal with her brother. Her alcoholic like, brother who's just like <laughs> his brother, Paul. Exactly. But it's like, it, A, it kind of makes Paul look good by comparison. But B, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we spend so much time dealing with it. Like, well, I think because they're showing you the difference between functioning abuse, substance abuse and non-functioning substance abuse. Uh, and I thought the movie, you know, because when he comes back from Dartmouth and he's, he's courting this young woman, Jesse Burns, you know, mm-hmm. he actually goes out with his brother, Paul. And I think you see a lot in this movie. You see substance abuse. You see racism because Paul's oh. girlfriend is Native American. Mm-hmm. And they go to a pre-prohibition speakeasy. <laughs> they don't want to let the Indian in. And the guy who knows Paul, because Paul's now a pretty famous local reporter. <laughs> and everybody knows Paul. And he's got a big personality. And he's a bit of a salesman. And he says, Paul, you know the rules. And he goes... I just don't like the rules. Because Paul says, I'm above the rules. I'm against all these laws of nature. I'm above it all, right? So but there's rebellion. Uh, there's family. I just think there's a lot in this movie. And then, of course, there's a love story. Because towards the end of the movie, Norman says to goes out for a drink with his brother Paul and says, I'm going to marry Jesse Burns. And he goes, with all the fish in the river, you're going <laughs> to marry her. So even Paul's like, not good enough for me, right? It's true. He, doesn't it's say, true. he doesn't say congratulations, way to go. He goes, huh, wow, okay. <laughs> yep. Okay, so yes, he eventually, he, he settles down with this girl, and but he gets a job offer at the University of Chicago. Yeah. So he's, again, bringing that to a head, his whole decision with mm-hmm. whether I should stay in Montana with my family or right. should I go blaze my own path. And part of the big reason why he also can't decide is because he's like, I want to, you know, I want to settle down with this girl. And I I think he also wants to stay to protect his brother, Paul, too. uh, That is also true. Yeah. Um, But then he he takes the offer and then he basically says, hey, why don't you move out with me? And he tries to do the same thing with his brother. Yeah. And uh, she ends up taking the offer, I believe, but he doesn't. Right. And then it all kind of comes to a head with Brad Pitt getting beaten to death, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because he discovers that he's got gambling issues and drinking issues. So one of the things I, I you know, we, we haven't really talked about is the, two, the character development of the, the, the duology going on between these two brothers. And it's obvious that Norman is just um, a brilliant English literature geek, for lack of a better term, how about that scene where he comes in the house and he reads poetry with his father, but he doesn't read it. He has it memorized. Nah. Right? 
That's remember that scene? He walks in and he hears his father reciting poetry in his study, and he finishes it. He finishes the poetry for his father. And then there's another scene while he's courting uh, Jesse Burns. And this is a pretty famous uh, story written by Norman MacLean, mm-hmm. which Redford made into a movie. And he writes a love poem to her, which if that doesn't bring a tear to your eye, I don't know what will. It says, as the moon rises over the Bitterroots. And the Bitterroots is a pretty interesting mountain range in western Montana. You know, as the moon rises over the Bitterroots, the, uh, my thoughts are of you, right? So it's just this beautiful love poem. And she's reading it. And it's obviously she's now smitten with this kind of nerd almost, you know. He's an outdoors guy, but he's kind of a nerd. And the thing I loved about Paul's character development is when Norman comes back from Dartmouth and he goes fishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fly fishing is their thing they do with their father, right? And they're fishing. And he said in his six years that he was gone, he said, Paul broke out of my father's rhythm. It's true. It's and in true. the years I was gone, he's become an artist. Mm-hmm. And they show that scene of him floating a fly above the river not in the 10 o'clock and the 2 o'clock metronome-like method that they were hot, but as an artist. And he said he could float that fly above the river and make a rainbow rise. Mm-hmm. So I liked the character development of these two brothers um, very much. And- what are they fighting on? What? What are they fighting on? Louder! that it's great uh it's a great setting contrast like you said i like the fact that they both actually ended up becoming writers obviously norman went the academic route he went to dartmouth and got like yeah. a formal education but paul yeah. is also a writer he's just a journalist and he's more yeah. like the the nose to the ground gumshoe right so kind of like that i just wish that you know if the like in the actual events of the plot yeah kind of got more dramatic or came more yeah. to it because the other thing, like I said, uh, Paul eventually, the gambling debts catch up with him. Right. And he dies. And it kind of like, if it weren't for the previous scene where they all finally go, go out together, all together. Mm-hmm. And like we've seen Paul and uh, Norman go off fishing together. Sure. Yeah. Before the climax of the movie, you know, or it is the climax of the movie, Paul, Norman and their dad all go out together mm-hmm. like one last time. And it's it's a perfect yeah. day. And. You know, Paul, and Paul, oh he gets caught in the river and he's like trying to get the biggest fish he can. And it's yeah. it's beautiful and dramatic. And yeah. but the very next scene, it's like, and I went off and then Paul got beat to death. And, you know, <laughs> it happens off screen. And I'm like, that's I guess that's kind of capturing how it happened for Norman. Like he wasn't yeah. there. He didn't get to see it. So. Right. But I don't know. For me, it kind of it rang a little uh, anticlimactic. Well, it's it's funny because. um there are multiple dinner scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And one scene, Paul, as the reporter, says, well, I've got a story for you. I interviewed the president. <laughs> and, you know, the mother and the father look on their faces like, oh, my gosh, Calvin Coolidge? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, 
he was fishing in patent leather shoes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Paul regales them with this story of seeing. And then, you know, months, weeks, you really don't know how much longer later, but it's, it's quite a while later. Norman comes to the table and says, I've got some news. I've accepted a teaching position at the University of Chicago. And the same thing, the parents, the same reaction. So there's that family structure, which they both got, you know, they both got the same love, acceptance, and nurturing of their parents, even though they went in different directions. That's um, and it's a great scene. Uh, in fact, in one of the scenes, Paul, again, another different dinner scene where Paul comes in and he goes, Norman's not, or when, and the, the mother says, Norman, what's the matter? And Paul just chimes in and he goes, Norman's not funny. Because <laughs> again, he's, his brother is, you know, he's a little bit more of an academic. So mm -hmm. now that other final fishing scene that you uh, point to, what I loved about it was Paul, the artisan fly fisherman. Mm -hmm. The older brother, Norman, and their pastor father are sitting up kind of high on a bluff. And they're watching Paul fish. And he knows he's going in the water. He knows he's going in the water because he takes his cigarettes out of his pocket, puts them in his hat. Mm -hmm. And he, and he spies this little still pool inside this little raging river, and he casts into there. And he hooks into a steelhead trout, which is the fish he caught. It's a huge trout. Mm -hmm. And it takes him down the river. And again, he doesn't do things the standard way. He does things filled with risk. <laughs> and, you know, the father and the brother go running down the river when he finally stops on an edge. has finally tired out the steelhead trout. And his father's reaction is, what? You are a fine fisherman. <laughs> you know, that's his father's reaction. Mm. Uh, so and it's nice because it mirrors um, the last scene that we saw them all fishing together. It was, uh, you know, they caught these two big trouts, Paul and Norman, the sons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And father brings out the biggest fish of all. It says, you know, the Lord has blessed us all today, but he's blessed me a little bit more. And it's uh, funny that in the last scene together, it's actually Paul who catches the biggest fish. <laughs> right. I you know. That was great. And I love the look on their face. Like, they're in awe. They're still in awe of their father. That has changed. That changes with time, right? As mm -hmm. it does with all adolescents to adults, it changes. Yeah. But the look on their face was pretty in awe, like the Lord has blessed us, some of us a little bit more than others. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was a great scene. I, I, um, there's a lot to like about this movie, mm -hmm. um, it, and whether it's fly fishing or you know uh, being a, a florist, you know, and raising big flowers, the fly fishing serves as the center piece of how they were brought up and how they were taught. Uh, to do things well and to do things right. He taught them excellence, right? Yeah. Excellence in writing, excellence in fishing. Um, I think him and his wife were excellent examples of being loving, accepting parents. Mm -hmm. There was another funny scene in the movie where he says to Norman, um, Paul's gone off, you know, they've had another dinner, right? And Paul goes off and the father turns to Norman, the older son, and he goes, I understand he's changed the spelling of our name. Mm. And it's a capital L in the word McLean. And he goes, people are going to think we're low on Scots because because <laughs> people that are, you know, a little higher along on the, on the yep. scale would never use a capital L. Uh -huh. they would, it's like McDonald would be MC small D, uh, uh -huh. you know, so I love that people are going to think we're low on the Scots. I mean, there is a lot of that kind of 
there's a theme of that of that kind of classism in the movie. Like again, yeah, our sure. favorite line, our favorite line that we still quote in this household. You know, when he's introduced to the Burns family, they yeah. were Methodists, who my father describes as Baptists who can read. That's a great line. That's a classic line. And and clearly, um, Jesse Burns's family is not as educated. You know that sort of classism comes through. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't excite him. He's a Presbyterian. Well, do- that's that's the other point I wanted to bring home is that obviously they capture being Presbyterian quite well. You know how those Presbyterians are. <laughs> very, they're very legalistic. Obviously, obsessed yeah. with excellence. You know. Yep. I know. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Oh, there's anything wrong with it. It's just you got to forge your own path. So that's, that's true. That's true. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words. And some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. And, you know, I think it, uh, the, the movie encompassed a lot. Um, the racism, they didn't even deal with it that much, except no. that, um, you know, well, again, that one scene uh, where uh, Paul's girlfriend was not welcomed in the speakeasy, but he brought her in anyway. Exactly. It's, it's more to prove that Paul forges his own path. And so obviously he doesn't care about race as much as everybody else does. So. And the other uh, kind of poignant scene that we have not talked about was where Norman... Mm-hmm. Tried to convince Paul to get in the car and come home with him. Mm. Paul said, you know, he kind of shows his fingers up in the air and he goes, I can feel it, Norman. These hands are hot, right? <laughs> and he's going back in there to gamble. Mm. And, and they agreed to fish the next morning. You know, this was sort of a penultimate scene. Mm-hmm. And they're waiting around at breakfast for him. And Norman doesn't know if he's actually going to show up. And he does. He's a little late, but he shows up. And uh, he's alive because I think Norman, I think Norman had an instinct that he's flirting with the wrong characters here to be in debt to. That's true. You know, he's and he he offers to lend him money and he goes, Norman, my debt, my problems, right? So he owns it. You know, he owns it for sure. But Norman tries to be the older brother, and and that that's the scene where they were actually in the car still. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul gets out of the car and says, "My debt, my problem." Yeah. So. Yeah, it was a good scene. I like that scene. Yeah, yeah. it's a good movie. I don't. It's. I don't. I don't. You know. I just think it's kind of like schmaltzy. That's all. It just got to It's. It's. You know me. I'm cynical, and you know I yeah. want something a little, little rougher, a bit of a romantic. Yeah. Well, if you remember from the beginning scene, Redford is narrating, and he's talking about his family, and there's a picture of him as an old man, mm-hmm. and it, and the ending scene is him fly fishing alone. And all those I have loved are now gone, you know, and he's fishing alone and he goes, I no longer fish the big waters by myself. Right. But he's out there by himself fishing and um, casting beautifully, by the way. Um, But but it's it's interesting. I think um, 
the story told through narration, like many movies we love, To Kill a Mockingbird or Shawshank yeah. Redemption. I love the narrative form mm-hmm. of storytelling through narration and the acting, the great acting. So I, I, I you know, we, we could probably think of a dozen other movies that we like that have that kind of. Well, I think this, what I was getting, the weird connection I was getting was this felt very Ken Burnsian. And wouldn't you yeah. know? And wouldn't you know it? I think there is an intentional kind of uh, invoking of that style because um, the Burns family, one of this, the youngest son, the one who wants some champagne, they don't give it. His name yeah. in the credits is actually Ken Burns. And, oh my gosh! <laughs> and so we get a lot of we get that voiceover, and we get the very in, evocative music of like a Ken Burns thing. So I think he was probably yeah. heavily inspired by the yeah. Civil War, which kind of came out I think a year yeah. earlier. Yeah, it was nominated, I think, for four Oscars. It won Best Cinematography. It won an Oscar for Cinematography. Oh, it was nominated a for a musical score. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for, uh, gosh, I'm going to say um, costume design or something. So it was, you know, as most Redbird movies, there was a lot of excellence in it. Um, yeah. And, of course, the scenery is spectacular. And, you know, Redford's a Westerner. You know, he's a, yeah. you know, he's a rancher. I've got an eye for that scenery. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he read the book and actually went to go see Norman McLean before he passed away. And it took him two trips because um, the author, Norman McLean, did not want him to make a movie. Oh, really? And Redford uh, had to convince him. And so, yeah, there's actually a pretty good story about that, that uh, Norman McLean did not want his family story told via film. Oh. And as he had written the book, did not think it. And, and Redford read the book and loved it and convinced him this would be a great movie. So, and uh, worked with a couple different screenwriters to take the book into a screenplay. And uh, that's where, that's how it became a movie. Okay. And that was two years. It took him two years to convince Norman McLean to release the rights uh, to, to record. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so what's on your what's on your spotlight this week, Jonathan? Spotlight, 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 spotlight. It's time, Robbie. It's time. Ugh, I've been I've been thinking about it, and I just saw Toy Story four, and I loved it. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's probably one of the better ones, even though everyone was saying like, oh, it feels perfunctory. But honest, honest to goodness, it was really, really good. Like, uh, obviously, they've moved past the whole. If you remember anything about Toy Story. You know, yeah. it used to be about Andy and how Woody was his favorite toy. Now they've shifted things. They've been, the toys have been passed on to a new kid named Bonnie. And Bonnie actually really has no interest in playing with Woody whatsoever. <laughs> but, but like that becomes like kind of the crux of the story. And where the plot kind of gets interesting is she actually makes her own toy. She makes uh, this little, she takes this spork, adds a little yeah. pipe in her hands and googly yeah. eyes to it. And yeah. then she dubs it Forky. And <laughs> It was actually Woody who kind of like helps her out because she made this on her first day of kindergarten. And that's right. the scene that got to me because uh, Bonnie hates kindergarten. And right. if I hated kindergarten, I was like bawling. But, <laughs> but you know. Thank you. I think your mother and I had to convince you that school was somewhat important and you had to play the game. And you were like, I can't believe I have to stoop to such levels of playing the game. Why couldn't I be like Paul? Why couldn't I forge my own path? <laughs> <laughs> But it, and uh, so this this toy that she makes comes to life, and then it's up to Woody and the other toys to kind of convince them that you're a toy now and you have to be there for the kid. Right. So it's, it's really interesting and it's really really funny. 
Well, I've not seen Toy Story two or three, so I, maybe I should just do a little day of rewatching Toy Story one, two, and watch two and three for the first time, and then be ready for four. You need to catch up. That I know they're, I know they're, you know, they're a little past your 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 day, but you know. Mm-hmm. Well, um, for me, um, I finally saw a movie with Kevin Hart. I saw the Bright Side. Okay. Oh, um, the uh, the Upside. Upside, rather. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was excellent. Um, Now, that is a movie based on a French movie. Yes. And so when I was reading the credits, Mom and I were reading the credits thinking, this was very good. And it said, based on the French movie. And I'm like, I've never seen a movie based on another movie, right? Well, Dad, if you were an astute listener of the podcast, you would have known that me and Greg revisited that movie. It's called The Intouchables. And we did an episode about it. I did not. I missed that episode. (laughs) Um, it's fine. We'll forgive you. We'll forgive you. All right. All right. I don't know how I missed that, but it might have been a week that I was traveling. So there you go. <laughs> but you liked it. You thought it was. Uh... I thought it was excellent. I thought it was great. And I highly recommend it. And it's got just the right amount of seriousness, humor. You know, it's it's like the movie MASH. It's a serious subject with an enormous amount of humor. Um, so um, and Kevin Hart is excellent. And I've never seen anything with Kevin Hart uh, and who's the actor in it? Um, Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston, uh, who was in Quadruplane. Um, one, yeah. So it was excellent. So okay. So that's my spotlight for the. That's my spotlight for the week. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, Dad. I, I, maybe oh. we'll check it out. Maybe we'll revisit it because you know we've already seen the first one. So it's actually based on a true story as well. Um, Mom was talking to Carol Hoffman about it, and Carol and Rod watched it. Watched the original in French. <laughs> With English subtitles. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, Mom saw Carol at um, Caroline Andrews's bridal shower yesterday. Oh. So the last of the Andrews kids are getting married. Are they getting married in Massachusetts or California? At, at, High, at High Rock. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It's the Church of the Bride. It's going to yeah. be the event of the season, let me tell you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what do you think the menu will be? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be better for where Rachel got married because Rachel got married in that old. Oh my gosh! Church with no air conditioning. Oh my gosh! Uh, how about and the and the reception was downstairs. Yep, it was in the basement. Yeah, that's right. So here's the real question. Yeah, this is an important question. Yeah. Will there be any booze? No, they can't serve booze at High Rock. Are you kidding? Why do they serve beer? There's like little beer fests there from time to time. No, no. They don't put a license. They need like probably the paperwork. It's Massachusetts. They probably have like (laughs) regulations up the wazoo. I'll uh, should. I think there's an over. I think we should have an over under on this. All right. Okay. I'm. I'll give you two to one odds that they will not serve alcohol. If I am wrong, then strike me down. Okay, so I'm going to give you uh, two to one odds that there will be. Okay. A lot. All right. Some white wine and some champagne or some... Yes, okay, they can do... Actually, I don't even think uh, Rachel had champagne at her wedding. She didn't, did she? I don't remember. That was so many years ago. Who knows? It was. Oh, well. It was. So, all right. Thank you so much for joining us, Dad. Thank you for filling in for Greg. And honestly, I thought it was probably a better episode because of it. Greg kind of rambles. Again... Where is he? he? He doesn't even have the internet where he is for kind of yeah, yeah, there you go. He's in uh, Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. Who knows where he is? Kazakhstan. It's a developing nation. 
It's uh, 90% Muslim, 10% other. <laughs> and he's working on the other. He's working on the other portion. All right. Have a great, uh, good luck with the car purchasing today. We'll do. Do All our right. best. I'll do, we'll do the, you can do the sign-off. So I'll say thank you, everybody, for listening. And do you know the sign-off, Dad? Um, keep aspiring. There you go. Got it. Thank you, everybody. Keep aspiring. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me.